Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 46 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Honestly, I have to say, I don't like to think about what life will be like in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. It's hard to think about life going on for that long of a period of time without our family being complete and without Andy being here. But I do find myself thinking about it sometimes, wondering if I will still think about Andy every day and how I will be feeling kind of on a day-to-day basis and how I will look back on this time and if I'll remember just everything there was to remember about Andy. That's why today's guest is really great to talk to. Adam's mom, Nancy, is 34 years out from the death of her son, Adam. So we talk a lot today about what those years were like and the wisdom, really, that she has gathered over these last 34 years without Adam and going through this grief journey. Thank you so much, Nancy, for agreeing to come on the show today. I am so looking forward to our conversation. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I you were recommended by a previous guest to be on the show. And it's funny what she wrote that your son, Adam, had died several years ago now and that you were very wise. So I look forward to hearing some of your wisdom I'm not putting any pressure on you. I can see in your (laughs) (laughs) in your face on the computer screen that you're feeling like, oh, maybe that's too much pressure, but it's not. I assure you. But uh, why don't you start out by just telling us about your son Adam? Um, Our son Adam was our middle child. We have three children. Uh, My first child was a girl, and then Adam was a boy, and Luke a boy as well. And right from the start, he was. Uh, a really remarkable child, very strong-willed. Um, we knew pretty early on that he loved music, and uh, I can't help but think now if he were still living, he probably would have chosen a career in music because he just couldn't get enough of it. Had beautiful singing voice as well. And um, every day I used to give my children about half an hour of quiet time in their own rooms. And his choice would almost invariably be to put something on a little record player and then get out a tape recorder and make his own little tapes. Interestingly, he seemed to not really like children's music that much. He loved James Taylor. I can't hear James Taylor music at all without without thinking of Adam. He just, he loved James Taylor. And he adored his younger brother, particularly his older sister too, but he sort of took him in hand wanted to make sure that he uh, sort of let him know what the world was like. 
And one of the things, and this didn't come from us really, aside from the fact that we said that Santa wasn't real because they, our kids said, was Santa, and, you know, and for whatever reason, that just really bugged him that people thought Santa was real. So one of his missions with his younger brother was to drum it into his head <laughs> that Santa was not real. One of our funnier moments with Adam regarding that was uh, when he was in preschool, uh, we had a, a Christmas party and I had signed up to be there for that particular party. Everybody had to have some kind of day that they signed up for. And I'd never thought about the fact that they had Santa come to visit for that little party. And he would take various kids on his lap and talk to them. And Adam at first didn't even want to, to do that. And I kind of took him aside and I said, no, just be nice. Just, you know. So he went over and sat on his lap with his arms crossed. And Santa <laughs> talked to him a little bit and he said to him, so what do you want for Christmas? And Adam said, nothing from you. <laughs> and he goes well why is that and he said because you're a fake <laughs> Which immediately I jumped in and kind of pulled him aside because you know I didn't want to hurt anybody else's feelings with that but that sort of encapsulates the kind of child he was strong opinions really knew what he thought about things hilariously funny he would zip up his little sweatshirt one time he zipped it up in the back seat of the car as I was taking him to school and he said, what do you think I am, Mom, right now? Think of what I am. And I kind of looked in the rear view mirror. Can't see anything but a little hole by his face. And I said, I, I don't know. What, what are you? And he said, a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was a delight to have him in our lives. And he brought an awful lot of color to our lives. Yeah, I remember, you know, we've met one time. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, a year and a half ago, actually, it was just the Chris Christmas time right after my son Andy had died. And I remember you telling your story and feeling like there were so many similarities between our boys. You know, I had I had girl boy boy just the same. Andy was the middle child, just the same as Adam. Yep. Andy loved music just as much as Adam did. And so I remember feeling this kind of bond with you right away, really, because I felt like on paper i mean except for how our children died there there's we really had a lot of similarities yes we did that's very mm -hmm. true and even the fact I, the thing that i take away from that that i remember so strongly was how much you said andy loved his younger brother peter and that was true in our case too they were that bond was just so so strong so yeah. inseparable uh, that, really yeah. inseparable yep well, why don't you go on and talk about Adam and what happened with Adam? When Adam was five uh, and in kindergarten, he had pain and his uh, teacher was concerned about him because it, it was bad pain. And so we brought him to the doctor and immediately the doctor, the pediatrician said, um, we need to bring him in to, to have him tested. And my heart just sank at that point because I knew it was... Um, not an easy fix kind of situation. So we brought him in and um, they diagnosed him as having a Wilms tumor, which is a, a tumor on your kidney. It's a children's tumor. Not very high percentage of children have it. Although interestingly in West Michigan, that was one of the first things they asked us when we went to Ann Arbor to Mott's Children's Hospital um, if uh, we lived in West Michigan. Apparently it was a higher amount I, and they don't know why. 
But anyway, so they removed the tumor and uh, supposedly, and this is a kind of hard part of our story, supposedly it was a very curable tumor. The percentage rate was high in the you know 70s, 80s percentile. So even though it was very traumatic, we had some hope. However, we, we made the mistake of beginning here in Grand Rapids with his surgery, not because, you know, I mean, it shouldn't be a bad thing, but DeVos Children's Hospital was not here at that time. So he was, um, he didn't have a children's oncologist for this. And they did not know that you were supposed to send a Wilms tumor to the Wilms Tumor Institute uh, to, to have it, uh, that basically the protocol for treatment uh, given from them. So we didn't know that they began a protocol here locally and it reoccurred, his, his tumor came back. And so at that point, we went to Mott's Children's Hospital and uh, found all this out. Our, our doctor there was very, very upset <laughs> about that, uh, that it hadn't been treated better. So uh, the long and short, his percentages went way down. And when he was seven, he died from, from the tum- uh, tumor returning, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was a that was a hard, terrible, hard time. But um, one of the hard things I think that I've had to deal with is just forgiveness. Yes. Uh, you know, the doctor was obviously not intending ill, but it certainly uh, changed everything. So, yeah. I I have thought that a lot with different families that I've spoken to, when there are errors made. Yep how much more traumatic that's got to be for families. Just, I know for me, I have the what if, what if, what if in my head all the time. But when there is an error made, I feel like that's just compounded. Yep, absolutely. And you have to deal with your anger, I think, among other things. But, you know, also that whole, you know, coming to terms with forgiving is not a one-time deal. It happens over and over again. You know, I, I, I talk about it to someone and I realize my anger has returned and I have to re-forgive. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's been true the whole time throughout all of this, just that. Um, I remember C.S. Lewis saying one time about his childhood that he had a terrible teacher who beat the kids. He said, uh, near the end of his life, he wrote to one of his friends and he said, I feel like I've finally forgiven him and then it all comes back again, and I have to do it all over again. And that's really true, I think, about forgiveness. Yeah, I think so too. I've felt the same thing that you feel like you're, you've gotten through it. You understand that you've been able to give it up, right? You give up that anger and you hand it over, and then all of a sudden it's like, and then you just grab it right back again, and then you have to start over, and it's a hard process to have to talk yourself through again and again and again. It It really is. Yeah. And the grief comes with that anger. So that's, Mm -hmm. it's like starting over in that sense too, sometimes. So, yeah. Do you feel those episodes of anger though, changing over time? Somewhat. They, let's just say it comes less frequently, um, but it's still a very strong need to, to, you know, come to terms with it. I don't think that has lessened. I think the amount of times it happens has lessened, but it's hard. You've lost someone who needed to have a future here, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's hard to forgive that. Mm-hmm. And what about through those couple of years? So he was sick for two years, right? Yep. So 
that must have been difficult too, being angry and knowing that things weren't going right and then still having to be a mom and having to be upbeat and with your child. Yes, so, so true. I remember every morning during his illness, waking up and hoping it was a bad dream, <laughs> that it wasn't true. And then you sort of brace yourself and say, okay, I have to be here for my family, you know? So he was actually better at taking things in stride than, than the rest of us were. He was pretty undaunted for the most part by his illness, which sounds really weird to say, but I know many people feel this who have had a child who's ill, that you do a lot of praying and you, you know, really seek out people who are strong prayer warriors for your child. And we prayed so hard for a miracle. Yeah. And I would say that the miracle that we wanted, we didn't get. But the miracle that um, came, we did get a miracle. And that was that Adam was never afraid to die. He talked about it very freely and easily. Um, the last time he was in at Mott's hospital and his doctor was going to talk to us, uh, he also talked to Adam. And Adam was like, just matter of fact about it. And that was amazing to us. Mm -hmm. He was not afraid. The, the things he was afraid of, he hated catheters. <laughs> In fact, on a wish list in the children's hospital, he wanted me to write that his, one of his wishes was that all his doctors had to wear a catheter all day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, was, he hated catheters and he hated to have his blood drawn. And then, you know, we had to deal with, with that. That was a hard thing. He would get very upset and worked up. But in terms of just um, dying, no, that was not the case. That is a real blessing, isn't it? Yes, it is. I feel that same way. Um, you know, obviously Andy was killed very, very suddenly, but there are two instances that I've shared in the past in his life that he really talked about death too. You know, the first one, he was seven, just like Adam was when he died. And he um, had drawn a picture that had four people in the family and did not include him. And when I asked him why, he said, just so matter-of-factly that he wasn't going to grow up all the way, that he was going to be in heaven. And it tore me apart. Mm -hmm. But for him, totally fine. I mean, yep. completely fine. And then uh, the second time was just only in the only a few months before he died when he was in the car with someone and the topic of death came up and heaven and he was talking to his friend, Charlie. Peter was in the car as well. They were carpooling to choir and talking about heaven and how excited Andy was to go to heaven. And he was just going on and on. And he goes, Charlie, how can you not be excited about heaven? How are you afraid to die? He just, it, to him, that was crazy to mm. be afraid to die and not be just over the moon excited to get to heaven. Yep. So... I mean, I didn't hear that conversation that was shared to me by Charlie's mom after Andy died. But it really is a blessing to know that it, that on two occasions, at least, you know, he really was very much looking forward to what was going to happen after this life. Yep. So, yep. Isn't that that's a, that is really miraculous, I think. That, yeah. Yeah, it really is. But you're right. It's not the miracles we wanted and it's not the miracles we prayed for. And I, I, that can be difficult when you see families pray 
for something like there was that movie that was out a while back when the kid fell through the ice and the mom prayed him back to life basically and (laughs) and i i got so angry by that movie because it really seemed like the point of the movie was if you pray hard enough and you have strong enough faith you will be able to pray your kid well yep and it to all of us whose children don't live it almost felt like a slap in the face yep And it's not what they want to do and it's not what they meant to do. I know, but it feels that way. Right. Right. Yep. Well-intentioned people. I think that's one of the things you learn when you lose a child that people have good intentions, but sometimes they really (laughs) go down the wrong path with that. I can remember one of my pet peeves, I think is when people would quote scripture and I love scripture, but you know, uh, for someone to come to you and say, all things work together for good, you know, um, no, not right now. <laughs> you know, don't, don't, sh- don't share that with me right now. Or let me come to that conclusion, maybe somewhere long down the line. But I think that's one thing that people have to be very careful of is not to, you know, be too quick to put a bandaid on something that's a gaping wound. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, scripture, scripture is powerful, but sometimes it's it has to be timely. Right. My favorite Bible verse always was Romans eight twenty eight, which talks about um, everything being for God's purpose and and for our good. And I I don't cling to that verse like I used to. I just can't. And I really hope and pray myself that someday I will be able to feel the same way about that verse that I used to feel. And I mean, I claimed that as my verse after my mother died, you know, for all things, God works for his purpose. And, and I, I really want that again for myself, but I can't do it now. I just, it's just too hard to think this thing is one of the all things. Yeah, I, this Absolutely. just feels too hard to feel like it's, you know, com- promoting God's purpose. Yep, I totally agree. And it's funny how different passages of scripture become more important to you after you've lost someone that you might not have valued as much before. You know, like the, the passage, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, you know, what God has prepared for those. I love that that verse now mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, from the Psalms, uh, you are my God, my times are in your hands. Um, it's true, you know, and for me, that's a little easier to swallow than the all things work together for good passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Ones that talk more about pain and suffering and mm-hmm. God being beside me in pain and suffering. I guess that's what I need to cling to is right. feeling n- that I am not alone you're not alone that's right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. and that the pain and suffering is there and not to somewhat belittle the pain and suffering and push it aside which many people can do like you said in a well-meaning way right right oh, and yeah. if they feel like they can if ever if it's all according to god's great plan then it's all good and so then this is good but right. i i can't have this be good this has to be terrible and mm-hmm. awful and, and it can't be good for me. It just can't be. That's right. I totally agree with you there. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of just um, trying to understand what that passage actually means. And maybe we're misinterpreting it. Mm-hmm. 
it gets used the wrong way that's for sure mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so how many years now has it been since it's adam died Been uh 38 years no 34 years since 34 adam years died. long time wow long time yeah your children your other children how was that afterwards i think i guess i think a lot about luke just knowing how things are with peter and just even for my own curiosity how things were with luke afterwards i i would say that out of all the people in our family I, well, obviously we all suffered but i think luke suffered the most and uh, it showed itself sometimes in overt ways with him having tears. And uh, after, after, shortly after Adam died, one of his dear friend cousin died. And uh, he was so angry. He just went out in the backyard and started throwing apples at <laughs> the fence and saying, I don't think God's real. So for him, his struggle, uh, even now into adulthood, is to hold on to God and to make some sense of all that. But in a more subtle way, uh, this is a story that just actually really is sort of at the heart, I think, of, of defining how Luke has handled this. When he, Luke was five when Adam died. And uh, when he was about eight, his sister was gone and he, uh, at some friend's house. He was home and he said, um, I'm going to, I've got a project, so I'm going to be outside. I said, okay, and let me know if you need anything. And I was working on some stuff. What I didn't know was that he was making a creation. And uh, when he was finished, he took me down, uh, we lived on a hill and took me to the bottom of the hill and made me said, look up now, look up. And on the fence leaning against the house, he had made a person. And he'd gone into like our little woodshed and found a semi-deflated volleyball um, for the head. And he had taken Adam's red baseball hat, which was so much a part of who Adam was during his illness, on his head, brought clothes and stuffed them and so forth. And here's this little person leaning against the house. And he said, look, I made a guy and had no sense that he had made Adam, really. Yeah. He had recreated his brother, but he was too young to really realize that that's what he was trying to do, you know, kind of uh, practice resurrection. So, and, and he wanted him to stay there. So every time we would come home, you know, I would just see this little person at the, at leaning against the house and it gave, gave him comfort. It was very painful for me. But I think that's sort of at the heart of what he's been looking for his whole life is that person who he would really like to um, step in and, and, and make some of that pain go away. Yeah. And he yeah. has wonderful people in his life and a wonderful wife and child, but he still, he still misses his brother and has really, you know, increasingly been able to express that, but it's, it's a pain that just doesn't go away completely. No. Yeah. So we all have that, but for, for Luke particularly, that was his hero, that was his buddy. And, uh, it has shaped him. It has made him very tender and compassionate. He is a, a, a amazing person. And maybe he wouldn't have been as amazing if this hadn't happened, but it's, it's very hard. That's a very hard thing. Yeah, it's very hard to watch Peter. It's one of the hardest things. I think about your Peter a lot. I think it will make uh, him golden uh, because that's what has happened with Luke. He's, he is golden. He understands things that a lot of people don't and um, in terms of suffering. Uh, 
It's really made him into a wonderful father and a very, very good husband. But what a price to pay, you know? Yep. Doesn't really seem worth it, does it? No. No. I know that when I met you, we were at a little Christmas gathering of some bereaved moms. Have you met with a lot of bereaved moms over the years? How has that been? No, not a lot. I, I've had the unique experience in our family. We have five girls in my, my immediate family, and um, my sister just above me lost a child, uh, I think, five or six years after Adam died. So there's a bereaved mom who <laughs> yeah. we share, we share uh, you know, that club that nobody wants to belong to. Meredith, uh, the person who you had mentioned earlier, um, is someone who came to me through another person. But I, I didn't, unlike her, she's been so wonderful about uh, reaching out to other moms, uh, partly for her own healing and partly for theirs. And I, I did not do that. Maybe partly because I'm a more private person who uh, kind of needed to just sort of work through it by myself to some extent. Uh-huh. Um, but I think one way that I've, I've really dealt with it is in terms of bringing what Adam taught me into my teaching. I'm uh, an English teacher. Okay. And his story inevitably came in somewhere in every classroom that I had, not every day by any means and not easily either. But I think that's perhaps one of those gifts that come out of something terrible, that it made a bond with people that would have not occurred otherwise. And even being able to be vulnerable about suffering, someone else, one of my students who may not have suffered that, but they suffered a loss, felt yeah. a little bit understood, you know? So in that sense, I feel like it's had a huge impact. I don't think I would be the teacher that I have been without that having happened to me, or that I would have seen my students in quite the same way as somebody so incredibly precious to somebody else if I hadn't lost someone so incredibly precious myself. So in that sense, it's been a huge impact on my life beyond personally. And even in terms of my grandchildren, I, I really feel like I see them through the eyes of, in many ways, a parent who's lost a child. And mm -hmm. I think I'm, I probably bring them something that I wouldn't have brought them otherwise if that had not been true. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I feel like in my occupation as a pediatrician too, working with kids every day, being a bereaved mom, you just come from an entirely different place and you just see them so much differently. And, you know, I talked about before when parents bring their kids in and they're worried, I think about it so much differently now yep. because I think about how precious that child is to them and how, you know, they really, how worried they are about their well-being that they're bringing them in just I think a lot more about the relationship yep. than I did before. You know, I used to much more think about their medical needs. And I'm sure that you thought of your kids more, your students more of their academic needs than you do now. Oh, yeah. Right? Than you did afterwards. Yeah. Now it's just much more of a whole person and the relationships 
think that just changes. You just you have so much more compassion yep. than you ever thought you could towards mm-hmm. other people. Yep. And you see them, I think, in a much more multifaceted way, and their parents, for that matter, in a, mm-hmm. in a different way. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're a really good pediatrician because of that, and probably a better one. Uh, I, I'd want my kid to have you, <laughs> just because, you know, you, you would see them more fully, you know, and uh, that, that's, a, that's a gift. Again, not I the- think I do see them differently than I did before. Not that I did a bad job before, but it just changes it does. how you see everything really in your life. That's right. I do think too, when you talked about going through kind of the earlier times, you doing that more privately is has to do with being 34 years ago as well, wouldn't you say? Right. Oh, yes. Absolutely. I mean, there weren't parent lo- parental loss, bereavement groups, grief support groups. None of that really even existed, I don't think. No, not a lot. There were some, and, and some were recommended to us, but yeah, yeah I, I'm, I wasn't comfortable with it. Yeah. No. It's and I think people are more comfortable with it now, but I do have to say that's one of the reasons I do the podcast is because not everyone is comfortable going right. to a group and sharing with other people. Right. Exactly. You know, I just reached out to a woman on Twitter this week because she was having a hard time because, you know, COVID does make things more difficult and things you used to do to help yourself cope you can't do anymore and she was coming up on the two-year anniversary just as I am and a lot of people suggested go to a grief support group do a grief support group do a grief support group on zoom and she just kept responding you know I've tried that and it's just not for me and so I wrote to her and I you know I don't mean to kind of toot my own horn and like promote the podcast but the whole point of the podcast is not for me right I don't make any money off of this I don't do anything this this is to just to purely help other people so I wrote to her I know support groups aren't the thing for you but you might want to listen to the podcast because it's a way you can get wisdom from other parents who have gone through this from other people who understand grief And you don't have to put any of yourself back in because I feel like that's a lot of the pressure. Right. Good comment. Absolutely. And and it's private, but also it doesn't take a lot of energy on your part. to. Right. You just listen. And if you listen for in 15 minute increments, because you can't handle listening to a full hour, that's no big deal. And if you skip some and do it, do three on the same day, that's not a big deal either. So it just makes you to be able to handle it on your own terms. Because Mm -hmm. I know I really did get a lot out of my grief support groups. But initially, I kind of hated going. I really did. I dreaded going. My husband really enjoyed it. So I kind of pushed myself to go. Now they are such a source of strength for me. And I really miss those people that I met there. But initially, it was hard. Mm-hmm. And just to be, because I'm a pretty introverted person. And I don't, I mean, it doesn't seem like that maybe on here. But that's because I can do it just one-on-one and much more anonymously than sure. I can 
talking to a bunch of other people. Anyway, I just feel like this is a way that more private people like you Mm -hmm. and me really can learn from other people without having to do too much at a specific time. Exactly. And another form of that when I was first grieving is books. You know, that's where I, I, rather than go to some kind of support group, I would find books. And I know Meredith, our friend also has done that considerably, but other people who have gone through this journey in one way or another, uh, Lament for a Son by Nick Walterstorff. Yes, Uh, I got uh, seven or eight copies of that sent to me. I bet you did. I bet you did. I got three. Um, but, and there was a doctor named, uh, Diane Comp. I don't know if you're familiar with her at all, but, and she's probably not in practice anymore now, but she wrote about, um, religious experiences of children who were very sick. And that was just fascinating, uh, to read that as well. And C.S. Lewis, of course, a grief observed and all, I mean, I, I guess that was my therapy group. And, um, if I, had, if I had been more outgoing, I think I probably would have joined But there again, you're bringing up a point that everybody grieves differently. Yes. And, uh, you know, we can't judge each other's grieving. I think people sometimes do that, like you should be over it by now or you should be late by now. And that's just, that's that's just silly. That's just not. There just is no timeline for grief at all. Absolutely. It's, It's unbelievable to me. I've had a lot of people reach out, you know, who are far different stages in their grief and some are quite far out from the event, but have realized that they just recently kind of started working on it and they had stuffed it away and hadn't really worked on their grief and paid attention to their grief. So they'd been stuck for a good amount of time. As a way of coming back, whether you want it to or not. It does. It does. Although I understand why you want to shove it away. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. I I do too. And there are times maybe where you, you should. Right. But it comes unbidden, <laughs> that that uh, moment of remembering, you know, some little thing will trigger where you, you weren't there at all. And uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Can you talk about some of those kind of experiences that you felt over time? I had a few things written down here with that. So sure. Start. Perfect. Well, the first time, uh, my first grandchild, when my daughter Jane uh, was told us that she was pregnant, um, and then later when she told us it was a boy, there was a part of me uh, that panicked uh, at that moment, which sounds like a funny thing. I mean, this is new life, and it's wonderful, but I really didn't want her to choose Adam's name. And um, I, I didn't want to say that to her, uh, because, you know, that's that's her business and not mine. But there was a part of me like, don't try to replace him or um, don't, don't make him a reminder for me, you know, of this. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was kind of, that surprised me, my reaction. And then she did choose Adam's name as a middle name, which was mm-hmm. perfect actually. And now that child, you know, that's an important name. And he has a few little important gifts from Adam because he has that name um, that I, I've been able to, to offer to him. You know, little things that Adam kept that I said, well, because you have, you know, your uncle's middle name, I think he would really want you to have this. And um, that's that's precious. But who knew, you know, I I had no idea that I would have such strong feelings about something like that. 
or you know the obvious ones are where um, you, you're watching television and St. Jude's comes on and you see these little bald-headed beautiful big-eyed children and it brings it back in a second and um, not just the visual but the feeling that you as a parent have looking at that child and saying no 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 you're not supposed to have a life like this and it's such a different feeling i think you get having lost your child your son to cancer too because i think a lot of people look at those commercials and they see a kid getting treatment and a kid that's going to get better and look at all the wonderful things they're doing at St. Jude's, right? That's what they're seeing. Exactly. And you see, oh my word, that, that child could be gone yep. in just a few months. How those parents will hurt, right? You are putting yourself straight into the parent's mind of this is what they're going through now. This is what they might have to go through right. if it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. That's right. right. Yep, exactly. And uh, having had students, various students who have walked through, you know, some of the cancer journey, you're, you're very aware of the fact that you want to offer hope and not enter. And I mean, that's something I have to really tell myself, you know, don't enter into the point where you actually take away the hope by the fact that you lost your child, <laughs> you know, that you want to be positive and maybe not even mention Adam at all, but he's still very much in my mind as I talk to them or, you know, try to offer some kind of consolation to their parents or whatever. So it's a tricky road, you know, in so many ways. You're, you're learning all along the way what to do and what not to do with them. What are some things that you would suggest people do? Um, you mean people who have lost a child or people who are trying to comfort someone who's lost a child? Well, I think kind of both in some ways, if you have, if you have insight into both things. Um, I think if, if um, you have, are trying to comfort someone, um, you need to respect boundaries and uh, not feel like you have easy answers. But at the same time, people really, I, I had a weird experience a few, uh, about a year after Adam died, I saw his little t-ball uh, coach uh, when he was in t-ball and we had had to quit the season because of Adam getting sick. And so he saw me at the grocery store and came up and he goes, hey, I remember you and how's that boy of yours doing? And I looked at him and I said, well, he died. And he said, oh, well, and walked away. Said, oh, well? Yes, he said, oh, well. Now, I don't hold that against him. In fact, I chuckled a little because it was so obvious that sheer panic Yes. Was on his face and he did not know what to say. I'm sure he beat himself up for it after. I know. But um, I think that's part of it too is, you know, entering into someone's pain, tread lightly. Be careful how you how you go into a situation with, with people. Yeah. Oh, well, was really a bad move. That was really, but yet in a way, like I said, there was humor in it. So in a way it was almost a relief, like, okay, buddy, <laughs> you just go ahead and beat yourself up. But yeah, I think people really need to talk sometimes about what happened, but then you better be able to handle what they have to tell you. Uh -huh. So my sister during this whole time, I have four sisters, as I said, but one of my sisters was what I used to tell her, she was my therapist. And I think that's an important part too, is that you need somebody who will let you just grieve and let you say the things that you need to say that you maybe wouldn't even say to your spouse because it would hurt him too much, uh -huh. but they can handle that, you know, and 
that that's really really important to have some to find someone who you're able to and and beyond that if you've lost a child i think getting counseling is something you shouldn't take lightly i all of us got counseling after adam had died and at different places in our, in our grieving journey some of us more than once i think that's a really important thing too when I uh, used to teach, and I, I quit just a couple years ago, but I used to uh, teach every year this book called um, The House on Mango Street, which is by, uh, it's a wonderful book by Sandra Cisneros. And it's just a series of little moments in this girl's life as she's getting older and um, is Hispanic and trying to uh, make sense of American culture um, and find her way. And she wants desperately to get off Mango Street because it's such a poor, awful area. And at the very end of the book, there's a little vignette where she is talking to these old ladies and they said to her, you have to leave Mango Street so that you can come back. And her response to that is, I'm never coming back. <laughs> you know, I am getting out of here and I'm never coming back. So I talked to my students about that and I said, you know, I think what she's trying to say here is that you can live your life in one of two ways um, when you've suffered. One of them is to live it as a line. And that's the sense of you have markers, you know, oh, this is when this happened. And of course, the death of your child is a line that, that marks everything. Yes. Uh, but this is this, and this was this anniversary and so forth. And the other way is to live it as a circle. And if you live it as a circle, then that means you're willing to come back. You know, I said she didn't maybe literally come back to Mango Street, but it shaped her. And so when she saw someone else suffering from those same kinds of things, she remembered it well enough so that she could do something about it. And I think if anything should be something we're all aware of, whether we're the grievers or the, um, the ones who are trying to comfort, is you have to revisit in order to heal. That's, not, that's hard work. It's easier that is to live hard work. Life. It is hard yeah. to want to revisit that pain. Yep. Again and again. It is definitely easier to say, I want to get past this. Yep, I want to push aside. past it. Yeah. Right. Push it aside. Get it behind me. Get over it. And yep. culturally, I think that's what everyone wants us to do. Right. Absolutely. They want yep. us to get over it and get past it. But I like that analogy of, of circling back. Mm-hmm. And yep. if you think of it, in that way, knowing that you're going to circle back and knowing that things might be different every time you circle back. That's a very good point. But knowing that you can do that, it's, it is in some ways a bit of a comfort, I think. It is. Yep. It's trying to make some sense and some good come out of. Now, all things work together for good. I said that before. I hate that verse. Right. But if you look at it in that sense, you know, that if I go back and I can do some repair work, certainly not replace work, but then, then it wasn't wasted. I don't want his death and suffering to be wasted. And if I live in a line, I think it is. Yeah. So I guess I, I, I hope my students came to some sort of sense of that, like be brave and say, yeah, I was bullied, you know, or I, I had a hard time with that as well. And um, you may find not only that you're comforting somebody, but that you actually heal to some de degree. That does go back to when you go back and help other people too in their grief, then you can help yourself in your grief. That's um, right. I think, I mean, you've definitely offered comfort 
to our mutual friend, Meredith, that you have offered a lot of comfort to her. And that probably has offered you comfort as well. Yes, very definitely. And I, I applaud her courage because having been through that journey, it's hard work and she's doing the work, you know, so that's very meaningful to me. That's nice that you can feel a little bit of encouragement from that as well. Mm-hmm. I think what changes over time and what doesn't was something I thought might be yeah. the same yeah. thing as how it's been a longer period of time. One of the things that hasn't changed is I still every day think of Adam. And most often when I first wake up, but at some point in the day, you know, and it's been over 30 years. So that doesn't change. And part of me would not want it to, of course, either. Yes. Uh, I feel that like actually I, is comforting to me. Yeah. Because yeah, it that, scares me sometimes to think that there might be a day that I wouldn't think of Andy. Yeah. And there won't be. I don't, I really don't think there, there, there will be. I would say the initial pain um, and the first years of grief is an emergency room kind of suffering. And so that's something that's changed. I'm not living in the emergency room anymore, but now it's more like adjusting to an amputation, you know, like, okay, so I lost that leg and now life is one leg short. Whereas before it was just panic and uh, pain and so much, so many tears. So that there's a change that occurs there, but again, it doesn't go away. You know, it just takes on a new form. Mm-hmm. We allow ourselves to see or acknowledge where some good can come from something so terrible. I think more as we get further down in our journey, I think it's really, really hard to, to see anything good for, for a long time. For me, at least, that was really true. I think also that one of the things that changes over time is our children enter into a new stage uh, in terms of their understanding, not only of us, but of themselves and their lives. One of the things that I've seen uh, is, and I mentioned this a little with Luke as well, but uh, that my children have been shaped by this loss in a way that has made them really good parents in many ways, and also um, brave in their, their willingness to revisit. And even to see us now as adults, they look at us and say, how did you do it? They never would have asked that as children, obviously. Mm-hmm. But to see that growth in them and uh, in their own parenting uh, has been a change that has been very encouraging to to both my husband and myself. So, yeah, I've also seen uh, my husband uh, uh, was a teacher for a while and then he went into business for himself. And funny how when you lose someone like that, it's like it really puts things into perspective in terms of priorities. Yes. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. There's so many things that don't matter <laughs> that yeah. uh, you think you thought you thought did, but really don't. I was going to mention that too, that, you know, a lot of couples, I think, go through some real struggles in their marriage after losing a child. They say the divorce rate with people who have lost a child is fairly high. In my case with John, I think one of the things that was really affirming from him was that he so entered into the responsibility for everything that was occurring and we had to shuffle kids here and there. And, you know, I mean, life changed with hospital visits and especially having to drive to Ann Arbor and so forth. And um, it was so obvious to me right from the start, what his priority was. And that was Adam. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember him saying, in fact, at one point when somebody said to him, you know, you really better get down there and check on your guy. And he goes, to hell with the business. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, for me, it was like, okay, so I know you're, we're on the same side and we're both just doing the best we can here, you know? So if there's any men out there listening to this uh, and they're going through something with a, a sick child, I think that's something they should be very aware of that their wife needs to know that they're in the same place as far as their concerns for their children that can get lost. Mm-hmm. Well, and people grieve so differently. I think moms and dads grieve differently. And you're right in that a lot of times men, I think, feel this real responsibility to protect the family, right? right. That's their That's job. The male role. Yeah. That's the male role, right? And and as moms, we feel like we should protect our kids too. But for dads, I think it's even more so because the dad is the protector. The mom's supposed to be the nurturer right? and the dad right. is the protector. So that's a good thing to think about whether you're a mom listening to the show or a dad listening to the show, just understanding that difference and the different roles that we tend to have or tend to expect. It's not that you always have to fall into that specific role but that's is what tends to be expected so the grief process is different I think it's different for the one who was the nurturer of the family as opposed to the one who was the protector of the family because as the nurturer you can still do your nurturing and you're nurturing everyone else and you're trying to do that as the protector I think there can be a lot of feelings of letting people down and letting yourself down and you can't protect them from grief now. I feel like that's a frustration that I see in Eric is that he's a protector. Obviously he couldn't protect Andy and now he sees all of us in pain and he can't protect any of us from that either Yeah, because we all just have to be there. So it is something to really appreciate and being able to say to my husband, it's okay. It's okay. Don't feel like you're letting anybody down yep. because you, you can't do that. Nope. You can't do what that, that role that was expected of you. Right. They want to be the white knight. That's what my right. husband terms it as. He wants to be the white knight who comes in and, and makes it all better. But yeah, that's very, I think that's really important to, to be aware of. Yeah. I know Eric, it really encouraged me to go to work sooner than I was ready to go to work. And I couldn't do that. And it was very helpful for him to go to work and it wasn't for me. But again, it was this role of him wanting to try to fix things and feeling like that helped him. So thus that should help me. So you should do that. And I think he does that a little bit with the kids too. Sometimes, pushing them to do things that they don't feel ready to do because he just wants to fix it. That's right. Men tend to want to fix things. That's really true. Yeah. Yeah. And And he's a doctor too. So goodness, we as doctors (laughs) feel like we have to fix things and no, so he's a dad and a doctor. No wonder he wants to fix things more. Well, and when you say that, it also brings to mind something about children in the sense that um, I think it's really important not to force them 
to you know say how they're feeling about all of the the loss especially initially mm -hmm. you really want to be sure they're okay <laughs> and uh that's that's so basic to your family being healthy and well but i i really felt like it was important to let it arise out of them you know and not, at the same time not make them feel like they couldn't say what they wanted to say because they might make me cry or make you know john feel better whatever it's such a tricky tricky it's time so tricky yeah and and yet it's so important to and so for us like acknowledging um you know adam's death or adam's birthday um we found ways to do that with hopefully without saying you know tell us what you're feeling <laughs> you right. know that it's here we are we're all in this together and if you want to say something you can and if you don't you don't have to people in general have their own grief journey but kids i've often been told will sort of wait to yeah. make sure their parents are okay yes they and they will. feel like because they just want to protect them so badly that yeah. they will see you know what I think mom's doing okay. I think she can handle this today. Okay, I'm going to let this out and I'm going to say this to her. Yep. I mean, it's too bad. I know as a parent, I feel terrible that I know my kids are trying to protect me and I know they keep stuff from me to try to protect me. But it's the way it is. It and is. I'm not going to be able to change that. No, Nothing, not. as much as I say, you can tell me, you can tell me, you can tell me. They're not going to tell me oh, you're unless right. they really feel like I can handle it. And that's going down to much younger kids than my own are yes. right? little oh, kids absolutely. will do the exact same thing yeah almost a role reversal <laughs> yeah Which is it strange. really is but it is yeah it is i talk about in the hospital people mention this to me all the time we had to tell peter that andy had died in the hospital and my pastor is the one that talks to me about it because he was there and he said, I will never forget that Peter reached out and started rubbing your arm. Like I told him and he immediately comforted me. Yes. That says a lot about Peter. <laughs> it does say a lot about Peter and it says a lot about our relationship, but it also says a lot about the fact that he didn't start sobbing in sorrow immediately. He just wanted to help me. Yeah, because he knew how badly I was hurting. That's right. Even though, I mean, he was hurting so so badly himself. Yeah. yeah. And sure. he and I think he knew. You know, he knew. He had seen. He was there. Right. He knew, but um, but he but didn't still. really know <laughs> until we told him. Yeah. But I'll forever remember that. I'll forever remember him, yeah. his instinct was to always help me. And I think that's is our kid's instinct. If we have good relationships with our kids, their instinct is to try to help us. Yep. Yeah. When they see rough stuff. Well, is there anything else you feel like you really wanted to share before we wrap things up? I guess just one final thing that I I feel like is important to say is that and I I don't want to sound trite with this, but it, God can handle our anger. I think yeah. that's one of the things that is really, really important for grieving parents uh, to be aware of. I, I remember one day when uh, Adam was getting treatment in, at, in Ann Arbor and um, he was having a bad day, a lot of pain and uh, they were overdosing him somewhat, not really over, but I mean, the morphine was making him hallucinate a bit with pain and I just needed to get out of there, that room. And so I said to my husband, I'm going to just take a short walk. I'll be back. 
and I took a walk and while I was walking, I just cursed God and basically said, what are you doing? I can't believe, you know, this child and so on and so forth and saying, basically, I'm done with you. Uh, I, I, you have not answered any of my prayers and I just really can't believe you're even there. So I'm done with you. And then I got in the elevator to go up to the fourth floor where Adam was and I pushed the button. And as I'm just, the doors are just about to open. I said, please let him be doing better. And then I thought to myself, crap, I'm talking to God again. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to talk to him. And that's an important moment for me because even when I run away from him, I can't help myself. I've got to come back and he can handle it. And that, that is hugely comforting to me. It's all right to pour out your misery because he's been there himself. So that's important. I remember my pastor telling me that very same thing that you can be angry with God. You can be as angry with God as you want. I mean, they're, talking the Bible about wrestling with God. As long as you're still angry with God and still wrestling with God, that means you still believe in God. Right. It means you still have a relationship. And you still have a relationship with God. And he said he would be more worried about me, this is right away, if I wasn't angry with God, because that he would think would mean I was ending my relationship. Yep. And I think that's so, true. That was hugely comforting to me because you feel guilt about being angry with God. <laughs> I did. I feel like I am a really bad Christian yep. because I am so just ticked off and mad at God right now. Yep. But when I started thinking about it in that way, like, well, as long as I still am mad at him, that means we still have a relationship. That's right. Yeah. And that means the relationship can get better. Yeah, that's right. So. Anyway, loved that. And it was hugely comforting to me when I otherwise was kind of feeling like a terrible person. So <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> right. Well, thank you for adding that bit. And thank you so much for agreeing to be on. You are a wise woman. You may not think so, but you definitely are. And I appreciate talking to you. Thanks, Marcy. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.